reserve right now we can take up to 31 students so let me encourage you to be with dr nathan burt right after chapel today uh, down by the baptistry side if you're interested at all thank you so much dr Gatch. all right dr jim van geldern is here with his team for our high school revival this week brother van geldern where are you i heard he was in here somewhere is he in here no? Okay. Well, if you see him around, tell him hi and uh, pray for that revival over in the school. That's what some of the, these things are for. And uh, we're praying that God will do a great work in our high schoolers and junior hires this week. And how many of you have been in, in the war with uh, Dr. Van Gelderen? You've been in one of those meetings and a great opportunity uh, for our students here to involve in that evangelistic and revival crusade this week. Well, take your Bible. And let's go to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 14. A very interesting story in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ here in Mark 14. I'll read it for us starting in verse 3 down to verse 9. The Bible says in verse 3, And being in Bethany... In the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. My freshman year in college, toward the end of the year, I met a young lady who eventually became my wife. We uh, had a few dates late that freshman year. She was a sophomore, I was a freshman, and we had a few dates. And through the summer, we communicated a little bit, came back in the fall, and my interest in began to grow a little bit in her, and I didn't know much about dating. I hadn't dated in high school and, and uh, been focused on other things, but uh, I was interested in this girl, and I had a, a buddy that had his locker next to mine in the locker room, football locker room, and his name was Doug, and Doug was an experienced dater. <laughs> He had been dating his whole freshman year and had a, a young lady named Carolyn, and they were very close, and they eventually got married. And, and I said, Doug, I, uh, I kind of have an interest in this, this girl, and I don't really know what to do. I, I, I mean, I, we talk, and we have good conversations, and we have fun together, but I really don't know much about this. Give me some tips. And he said, well, if you're really interested, you need to, you need to get her a little gift. Girls like that. 
They, 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 it kind of shows that you're interested, you know. And so, so get her something. I said, well, Doug, what do girls like? I mean, like footballs? I got several of those. He said, no, 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 no. He said, he said there's, a, there's a place about a mile from campus. And uh, he said, it's a little gift store. It's right on Main Street. He said, you can't miss it. He described where it was. He said, walk down there. And, and he said, you'll, you'll find something in there. That it's, it's kind of a ladies' store. It's kind of a knick-knack place. You'll find something in there. So a few days later, I, I walked. I didn't have a car. I walked that mile down to Main Street. And I went in that store. And I walked in. There was nobody else in there except a lady that looked kind of grouchy behind the counter. And, and uh, the store was all these glass shelves. And they had all these knick-knacks and different things on them. And very dainty, very, very, uh, very feminine-like. And, and so I walked in there, and I was kind of, you know, out of my element a little bit, but I started walking down these rows of, of uh, glass shelves and all these beautiful little knickknacks, and I was picking one up and looking at it and turning it over, see how much it cost, and putting it back. And, and uh, you know, and this lady is just staring at me, like giving me the evil eye. And uh, I, I'm just shopping, you know. I get to the end of that row of these shelves and there was a big sign on the wall. And it said, pretty to look at, nice to hold, but if you break it, consider it sold. <laughs> Boy, my hands went in my pockets. I wasn't about to touch anything else in that store. I could not afford to buy something that was broken. Most of the time, when something breaks, we consider it useless. We throw it away. It has served its purpose, but it's broke. We perhaps at least throw it in a drawer or perhaps on a shelf. We can't use it anymore. It's broken. Broken things tend to be what we consider trash. We consider them useless. But could you think of something this morning that has value, but it's not really useful until it's broken? Could you think of something that has value, but it's not really useful until it's broken? I. Uh, enjoy having one of these in my pocket. This is designated by the United States Treasury as a $20 bill. It's just a piece of paper. But it has been designated as worth $20. It's nice to have one of these. You can buy stuff with these. You can buy food. You can buy Three gallons of gas. <laughs> you, you can buy stuff with $20 bills. They're nice to have. They have value. But when I travel, I have to do my laundry. And so when I'm out on the road, I find a laundromat. And I go in those laundromats and those washing machines, they don't take these. They, they don't work. Now, there's enough value in this piece of paper for me to do my clothes, wash and dry. But I can't use this. 
it has to be broken. Your life has great value to God. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Your life is the dwelling place of God himself. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? In other words, your soul, your life is worth more to God than the whole world. But we're only going to be useful if we're broken. Job said, I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. Job allowed God to break him so that he could be set up for God's mark. Are you willing this morning to let God break you? To God, something that's broken is not trash. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. The Lord is nigh unto them that be of a broken heart and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Is your life broken this morning? You have value. This is an amazing student body. It's become evident that you have amazing talents and you have wonderful intellect and you're growing in the Lord. You have value. But we will only be useful if we're broken. I want you to notice some lessons here from a broken box. I see, first of all, a calculated risk. In verse number three, being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Jesus has entered into the house of a leper. You know a little bit about leprosy from the Bible. We are experiencing here in America for the first time in a long time, leprosy. There has been an outbreak in Florida of leprosy. Leprosy is a horrible disease. It is a disease that starts under the surface of the skin. It is undetectable at first. It's kind of like sin. In fact, leprosy is a picture in the Old Testament of sin. Because oftentimes we don't notice our sin. It's on the inside. We keep it covered. In fact, we work hard at covering it. But it works its way to the surface and like leprosy destroys the body from the inside out just as sin will destroy your spiritual life from the inside out. And here's Jesus walking into this house of Simon the leper. This was a fatal risk. You recall in the Old Testament in Israel, when someone had leprosy, they were not allowed to live with their family. They were not allowed to go to work. They had to sit outside the gate of the city. And if anybody came near, they covered their mouth and they cried, unclean, unclean. In other words, don't come near me. I have a disease. You don't want it. Stay away. They were placed outside the city. Here was a calculated risk, a fatal risk. Are you willing to die to self? Are you willing to die to the old man? Are you willing to die to the flesh? 
You willing to die to what I want so that God can live in you? Are you willing, as Paul, to say, I am crucified with Christ? Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. A fatal risk. Here was a family risk. This word woman here indicates a married woman. I wonder if her family knew where she was going that day. I wonder if they might have tried to dissuade her if they knew she was going to the house of a leper. I wonder if they might have said, Mom, hey, don't, don't go there. Uh, you're risking your life. You may never come back. You're, you may get a disease. You, you may get sick. Please, don't, don't do that. A family risk. Some of you have had to say those very things to your family. As they have said, hey, don't, don't, don't serve God. Hey, you don't need to go to church. Hey, you don't want to think about going to Bible college. And you've taken that family risk. I'm glad the Bible says, when my father and mother forsook me, then the Lord took me up. I'm glad there's a friend that sticketh closer than even a brother. Here was a fatal risk. Here was a family risk. Here was a financial risk. The Bible says here in, in verse number three, that this, this box, this alabaster box of ointments of spikenard, very precious. In fact, later in the next verse, they said it could have been sold for 300 pence. Now remember, people in this time period worked for a penny a day. So 300 pence would be 300 days of labor. That's like a year's salary. If you work six days a week, you're working... 300 uh, days a year. That's what that box was worth. A year's worth of wages. Here was a financial risk. You know, we get way too confident in our stuff. We get way too confident in the things that the world provides for us. We get our eyes on the bread instead of the giver of the bread. God says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having then food and raiment, let us therewith be content. For they that will be rich fall into many temptations and snares, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, have erred from the faith and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesseth. When God evaluates this student body, he's not looking at the parking lot to see what you drive. When God evaluates the, this, this student body, he's not going through the closet to see what kind of name brands you have on your clothes. That's not what makes up life to God. Be careful. This was a financial risk. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. It's okay to enjoy material things. It's okay to enjoy when God blesses, but don't set your heart on it because it's staying here. Here was a calculated risk. But notice, secondly, a crushed resource. The Bible says in verse 3, she break the box. 
a broken vessel. She break the box. Have you ever let God break you? Have you ever prayed the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but thine be done. A lot of us pray the prayer, not your will, but mine be done. Are you willing to be broken? Have you allowed God to break your life? Here was a broken vessel. I love the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle in the Gospels that all four of the Gospel writers tell. It's an amazing story. 5,000 men plus the women and children listening to Jesus preaching. It gets to be the afternoon and Jesus says to his disciples, uh, give these people something to eat. They've got a long journey ahead of them. Give them something to eat. <laughs> and the disciples are saying, Lord, uh, well, we don't have any food. And if we had uh, 200 penny worth, if we had 200 days of salary, we couldn't buy appetizers. We wouldn't have enough for anybody, everybody to have a little if we, had, if we even had 200 days of, of wages. We, we couldn't feed this crowd. Lord, it's impossible. And one of the disciples said, well, there is a lad here, and he, he's got a lunch. It's, it's five loaves and two fishes. But... What are they among so many? Did you know that God gave the great commission, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Did you know that he gave that to the local church? Now, this is a big church. But there's over 8 billion people on the planet. How are we going to do that? God commissioned us to go into the world and make sure that every single person hears the gospel. This is a great student body. But what are we among so many? We could take every young man in this, in this room right now and put you in a pulpit in a Baptist church somewhere in America right now. And we'd still have pulpits empty. We, we, we could take every, every person in this room and put you on a foreign field with a missionary that would need your help right now. We, we could put every student right now, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, we could put you in a Christian school and they would need you. What are we among so many? But Jesus took the lunch. And the Bible says he, he gave thanks. And after the disciples had made them sit down in companies of 50, the Bible says he broke the lunch. And he gave the broken pieces to the disciples and the disciples to the companies of 50. And after everybody had eaten and was full, they took up 12 baskets of leftovers. What are we 
among so many. But if God can have your life and you allow him to break it, there'll be leftovers. You'll be looking for somebody to give the gospel to that hasn't heard it. Because with God, all things are possible. In churches all across the world, preachers stand up on Sunday morning and they preach the life of Christ. They preach how Jesus did good, how he healed the sick, how he, how he helped people that were poor. They tell about Jesus' life and all the things he accomplished and they preach that we should be like Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that preaching. But if Jesus had lived his entire life, that life would not save you from hell. Jesus had to die. And how did he picture it? That in that upper room, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Jesus Christ was going to be broken on that cross. Why? So that you and I could live forever in heaven. There had to be the breaking. One life broken, saved, or gives the opportunity for all of humanity to be saved. Because he was willing to be broken. Are you willing to be broken? She broke the box. You know the story of Jim Elliott, missionary to the Aka Indians. Began to drop leaflets on those people that they didn't know the language, they didn't know anything about them really, other than that they had killed people that had tried to come into that village and they were trying to reach them. And over and over again, they, they laid down those pamphlets and tried to reach them. And one day they, they began to land. And you know, they, they, they worked six years there and never reached a single person. In fact, do you know how many people Jim Elliott won to Christ in his ministry? None. Not a single person. When Jim Elliot was martyred, when his life was ultimately broken, wow. You understand the man who threw the spear that killed him in the river that day became the pastor of the church there? You understand that Jim Elliot's grandson is still pastoring there? Those tribes have been reached because one person was willing to be broken. Are you willing to be broken? A calculated risk, a crushed resource. But notice thirdly, in the midst of this beautiful story, there's a condemning ridicule. Whenever God uses a life, there's always gonna be somebody that's gonna oppose it. There's always gonna be opposition, and we see it in this story. In verse four, the Bible says, and there, was some, and there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? It might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor and they murmured against her. There is a story very similar to this story in Mark 14 in John chapter 12. Some scholars believe it is the same story. Some believe that it is two different stories, but the events are very, very similar. In John chapter 12, we find out who it was that murmured. His name was Judas. And we see here a haughty spirit. They thought within themselves. They murmured within themselves, the Bible says there in, in, in verse number four. They had indignation within themselves. You know, uh, 
we got to be careful, don't we? Because sometimes on the outside, we can paint this picture like, hey, everything's great. How you doing, brother? Man, it's a good day, right? And inside, like, I wish I could get out of this place. I hate this class. You know, I don't like it here. And we, we have indignation within ourselves. We always have to remember God sees the inside as well as he sees the outside. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, whereby he searches all the inward parts of the belly. God doesn't have to look at you sing to know, know where you stand spiritually. He doesn't have to hear me preach to know if I'm right with him. He just has to look at my spirit. He just looks at my attitude. He looks at the inside. Here was a haughty spirit. And, and it was coupled with a half-hearted suggestion. They said, this, this, this could have been sold and, and the money given to the poor. Now, in John chapter 12, it says about Judas, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but that he held the bag. See, if this was Judas in this same story, he wasn't saying, oh, this 300 pence, we could have sold it, we could have given some money to the poor. The Bible says he didn't care for the poor. He held the bag and what was in it. You know, it's amazing how we spiritualize our disobedience. And we like to add a little spiritual context to our sin. Try to spiritualize it. That's what Judas is doing here. He wanted that money. He thought it was a waste. But he adds, well, we, we could have helped the poor. He wasn't going to help the poor. He was only thinking of himself. And so often we can think merely of ourselves. And this is all coupled with a very hateful speech. The Bible says they, they murmured against her in verse 5. Be careful about what you say. When you speak a word, you're just starting that word on a journey. People remember what you say. How many times have you said, I remember you said. That person, I don't remember saying that. Oh yeah, I heard you say it. See, when we speak, we're, we're just starting the process of a word. That word has effect. We need to be careful about what we say about other people. We need to be careful what we say about God. Everything you say about God could affect somebody's eternity. What, what, what you say about the Christian life, what you say about your local church, what you say about your pastor, what you say about your friends, be careful. It was a hateful speech. But I want you to notice finally, not only a calculated risk, and a crushed resource, and a condemning ridicule. But I want you to see a clear reminder from our Lord. In verse 6, he says, let her alone. Why trouble you her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Can I tell you, young people, no amount of time or energy or expense for the Lord is ever wasted? People will look at your life in Bible college and think, what a waste. That, could, that kid had a scholarship. That kid could have done this. That, could, that kid could have had a free ride. He, he could have played football or he could have, he could have had an academic scholarship. Why is he wasting his time in Bible college? You're going to graduate and get out and go in the ministry and people are going to say, why would you, why would you be in the ministry? People hate you. <laughs> people don't like you. You're never going to make any money. You're never going to have this. You're never going to do that. And, and people are going to, you're going to face those things in your life. But 
understand, nothing that you ever spend of your life on God is ever wasted. You've never wasted one minute reading the Bible. You've never wasted one minute praying. You've never wasted one minute out soul winning. You say, well, nothing happened. How do you know? You don't know the results of everything you do. My oldest son was born on April 4th, 1977. It was a Monday. And I had started a revival 30 miles from our house in Valparaiso, Indiana, that Sunday morning. It was the week of Easter, and so my wife, who was teaching a Christian school, had that week off. And so she decided to have the baby on Monday, so she'd have four days to recover, so she could go back and teach the next Monday. So we had the baby on Monday, and I was able to be home, you know, for the baby being born. And, and uh, then, then that night, I went and preached in Valparaiso, 30 miles away. The following day, my wife got out of the hospital, and, and she brought, we brought John with us to that revival. And my wife sat on the front row with that little baby, and I was a proud father, and my son in the service. I tried to preach the devil out of him that first night, you know. <laughs> I, I was pretty excited about that. Well, that week ended. It was a great week. I was preaching revival. I was a new dad. And I was with my family. But now it was Saturday. And my next meeting was in Ames, Iowa. About 200 miles away. And the doctors had told us that we couldn't travel with our baby for a few months. And my wife was teaching. And Man, I, I began to struggle. And my, my wife said, when are you leaving? I said, I don't know if I'm going. I mean, I, I know I'm supposed to go and I'm scheduled to go, but I, I, I think I need to stay here. I mean, I'm a dad now. I got to take care of the family. And my wife said, well, you got to go. Uh, she said, this was scheduled before we even got pregnant. You know, so you need to go. God knew all this. And I said, yeah, I know you're right, but I don't want to go. And I argued till about noon, one o'clock, and finally I thought, I, I need to go. And I got in the car, but the whole way there, I'm arguing with God. God, can I turn around? Can I go back? I don't really want to go preach. I want to be with my family. But I kept going. I got to Ames, Iowa. The church was out in the country, about eight miles out of town. It was an old school building, an old elementary school. And the thing should have been condemned the day Noah got off the ark. I mean, it was, it was amazingly old. It looked like if you opened the front door, the whole thing would cave in. Inside, they had fixed it up a little bit, and they, they, they had the church, the, the auditorium, in the old gym. I don't know how they played basketball in that place. The, the gym was extremely long. It was almost as long as this auditorium from probably the stage to the back wall. It was extremely long, but it was about as narrow as these chairs right here. I mean, it was just, I don't know how they played basketball in there, because it was, it was too narrow. But, but, but it was long and narrow, and they had chairs, folding chairs, set up all the way to the back. Now, the church is running 20. They had like 200 chairs in there. And like good Baptists, Sunday morning, those 20 people all sat on the last two rows. <laughs> I couldn't even see them. Let's just preach to them. You know, like, hey, good morning. <laughs> you know? I said, why don't we all move up? They're all back there, good Midwesterners, you know. <laughs> They're not moving. So I preached, but I, nothing was happening. I mean, you could just sense that there was just nothing happening. 
And we went out, soul went in, we tried to invite people to come, and as soon as they found out where the church was in that school, they said, uh, I, don't, I don't think I can make it. You know, that, that, that school was old, it was dilapidated, it looked terrible, nobody wanted to come. We didn't see any visitors come. Those people sat on those last two rows the whole week, never budged, never said anything. And, and, and I'm like, this is the judgment of God. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be at home. And God is judging me, you know. That's how I approached it. Well, unbeknownst to me, on Tuesday night of that meeting, a man was brought to the services. I didn't say asked to come. I didn't say invited to come. I said he was brought his name was Steve Highland. Steve was in his early 20s. He was a drug dealer on the campus of Iowa State University, their names. Now, this is 1977. This was like the era of your great-grandparents, okay? He told me later he was making, not grossing, he was making $20,000 a week on that campus selling crack. There was a guy in the church named Bud, and Bud had gotten saved. He was a former drug uh, user, bought his drugs from Steve, and when Bud got saved, just a few weeks before that revival, he got burdened. I preached on soul winning. He got burdened for his drug dealer. And so on Tuesday afternoon, he went over to his apartment, knocked on the door. Well, Steve hadn't seen Bud for several weeks because he got saved. He quit drugs. So he invites him in, thinking he's there to buy some, buy some cocaine. And uh, he gets inside, and, and uh, they talk a little bit. And, and uh, Steve said, what do you need? Or Bud yeah, Steve said, what do you need? And Bud said, uh, I don't need anything. He said, but you're going to church with me tonight. And Steve said, I ain't going to church. Steve had never been inside a church building in his life. Not for a funeral, a wedding, never been inside a church. He said, I ain't going to church. Bud said, yeah, you are. You're going to church with me today. Steve said, I'm not going to church. Now, Bud was a big guy, and Steve was not a big guy. And, and Bud went over and grabbed him by his shirt and picked him off the ground and said, Steve, you are going to church with me tonight. And he carried him down two flights of stairs, threw him in his van, and brought him to the church and set him on the back row with the other Baptists. <laughs> I didn't know he was there. couldn't see him. I preached, nothing happened. Steve told me later, he said, he said, you scared me half to death. He said, I, 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 I never heard of hell. I never heard of heaven. I never heard of sin. I, I, I never knew nothing. He said, you scared me to death. He said, when you bowed your head at the end and closed your eyes to pray, he said, I got out of there. Now, I don't know how he saw that I closed my eyes. I couldn't see his eyes. <laughs> he said, I got out of there. He went outside and he hitchhiked those eight miles back to his apartment. He tried to go to sleep, but he couldn't. At 2.30 in the morning, he got on his knees at his bed and he said, God, I, I don't know who you are. I don't know even if you exist. But if what that preacher said is true, I, I want you. The next day, Bud, that new Christian, barely knew the Lord himself, and been saved only a couple weeks, went back, knocked on his door again. Steve invited him in. 
And Steve began to tell him what he had prayed. And Bud took the gospel, he took the Bible, and he began to share the Romans road with him as best he knew it. And about halfway through it, Steve said, I think I got saved. Five months later, Steve Hyland went to Bible college. Before he left Ames, he gave away over $100,000 of drug money. Gave it away. He went to Bible college without a penny in his pocket. He said, I'm not going to school on the devil's money. Went to Bible college, four years later graduated. He's pastored now for over 40 years. I never even knew he was there. I'm telling you, you're not wasting anything when you give it to God. God keeps the results. God keeps the score. You can't see the scoreboard. Here's a praised example. Let her alone. She had done a good work. A praised example. And notice, it is a picturesque exhibition. The Bible says here in verse 7, that for you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me, you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Do you understand that this woman is the only person that got to anoint the Lord? Now, others came after he was buried. Remember the first day of the week, the women came to the sepulcher. They had the spices and the ointments. They were going to anoint his body. And they were thinking, how are we going to remove that stone? And they get to the sepulcher, and the stone is rolled away, and the angel says, why seek you the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. They came to anoint his body. They never got to do it. The only person that got to do it was this woman because she did it aforehand. There are going to be a lot of people in hell one day that will know they needed to have gotten saved, but they didn't do it in life, and so now they can never do it. And there are a lot of Christians that know they ought to read their Bible, and they know they ought to pray, and they know they ought to tell others about Christ, and they know they ought to be faithful, and they know they ought to be in Bible college. But the only way you're obedient is to do it now. When you stand before God one day, it's going to be too late. It's a picturesque example, exhibition of how we need to live our lives for God today. But then we see a perpetual exercise. Now, verse 9, look at it, because this verse, this verse is a baffler. In verse 9, verily I say unto you, this is Jesus now, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Now, I think you are like me and you take the Bible literally. And Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, I want this story told. That's what verse 9 says. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, this, this story needs to be spoken. I think, well, wow. I've preached a lot of times, but I haven't included this story. And I checked. Uh, Billy Sunday didn't. D.L. Moody didn't. John R. Rice didn't. The Apostle Paul didn't. <laughs> so what does this mean? Wheresoever the gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also, this story about the broken box, this shall be spoken. 
as a memorial of her. What does he mean? The gospel is never effectively communicated except from a broken life. This story has to accompany the gospel. The only way the gospel is effective is if it's coming from a broken life. We can go out soul winning. We can knock on doors. We can go through the motions every Saturday. But our impact will be none unless our life is broken. I think too often as Christians, we want to be one of these. And Bible college kind of feeds into that because we're increasing our knowledge here. We're learning a lot of new stuff. We're gaining information. We're understanding Bible truths. We're learning methodology. And so we're getting to look very valuable. In a few weeks, pastors will come from all over the the country to interview our seniors. Why do they come? Because you're valuable. You've got an education. You've been in Bible college. You've been trained. You're those $20 bills that everybody wants because you have value. But will we be useful? I like I like these. They're great. But I keep in my car this little bag. It's in the council between the two front seats. This bag is full of quarters. I don't know how many. Every time I get a quarter, except for that one, (laughs) it goes in this bag. It travels with me. Why? Because I need to do my laundry. I can't do it with that. I need something that's broken. Now, these quarters have the same value as this. I can buy McDonald's meal with this. I can buy a McDonald's meal with these. They like it better if I use this. I can buy gas with these. Again, they're not real happy with me. But the value is the same. But I can't do my laundry with this. I, I, I can't use a vending machine at the airport with this to get a bottle of water. I, I can't put air in my tires with this. I got to have something that's broken. I'm sure God is pleased that you're here increasing your value. But I don't know about you. In God's hand, I just want to be a bunch of quarters. So that whatever the task is, God can always use me. I don't want to be one of those Christians that God says, well, you're great, but I I can't use you for this job. I want to be the kind of Christian that God says, whatever the job is, I can use you. I can use you for a big job because you have value. 
but I can use you for a little job as well. Would you determine today just to be a handful of quarters? You have value, but to be useful, we must be broken. Let's bow our heads for a minute. Thank you, Lord, for including this story in the scriptures. Thank you for what it teaches. Lord, may we apply these truths now personally. It's fun to increase our value. It's fun to get an education. It's fun to excel at something, see success. It's nice when someone says, wow, you have a lot of talent, or wow, you're really, you're really something. But Lord, I think all of us are here intentionally because we want to be used. We want, to, we, we want, we want our life to accomplish something. We, we want you to be able to take our life and change the world with it. And so, Lord, we have to be broken. Now, Lord, you could break us. You could bring something into our life to break us. Lord, I believe it'd be much more pleasing if we would humble ourselves before you as a broken vessel. And so, Lord, today, may we simply pray, not my will, 